is Hebrews 7, 4 through 28. This is going to be, so that you understand it, a sustained contrast between two different kinds of priests. And the first person he mentions, usually that's Jesus. In this case, it's Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 4 through 28. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest Forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor 
of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a lot there, huh? (laughs) It's good to be with you. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed the praises of the people. You have blessed our coming together and worshiping. Continue to direct our hearts to you, Lord. Speak through me as I preach and let your word shape our hearts. Lord, point our eyes in your direction, especially in times of great fear, in times of great suffering, in times of great distress, depression, whatever it may be, even those times of abundance when we have the the temptation to take our eyes off of you. Lord, keep us focused on you. Keep us steadfast in your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, it is. Um, th- this is a, a great weekend for the Brandenstein family because, if you've noticed, my daughter Zoe is home, and uh, we are five once again. And I'm really excited about that. She flew home last night, arrived around ten, and we had a great time welcoming her at the airport, and uh, and then kind of hanging out and staying up late last night, just visiting, catching up, and that was a real joy. Um, you know, but it's been, it's been a real adjustment for us as we've had one in, in college and, and, um, a lot of you have felt that. Uh, first of all, just having her away is, is different. But also, I think what's been most poignant for us, uh, as far as her social status goes is that she's no longer a child, she's a legal adult. And that's kind of weird because what happens is when, you know, she goes to the doctor or something, well, the doctor's not gonna, talk to us first, the doctor is going to speak to her, because she's an adult. And as she, where we noticed this recently is as she started college at Baylor, that all of the information comes to her first, and then she passes it on to us. 
Now, her and her friends are going to be moving into an off-campus housing next year, so we got to experience the signing of a lease. But the lease, of course, because she's an adult, came to Zoe. And with that lease, it's, it's an agreement. It's a promise. It's a promise that she is, is uh, signing on to, and it's also a promise that the leasing company is signing on to. And they are, when she signs her name, she is promising to pay the, the, the stated rent for the month. She's signing to pay it on time. She's, pay, she's signing to uh, pay any additional fees or any damages, which we hope there won't be any damages, but she is signing on to take responsibility for those things. And then the leasing company, in return, is promising to provide her the place that she saw as she saw it. Also, with with this lease, they will pay for the utilities. They promise to keep the place safe and keep everything working. And that's it, right? That's not it. Because they don't trust her to pay everything on her own. So they have to invite a third party into this contract. And guess who that is? (laughs) <laughs> so rightfully so, and, and we are happy to, but Christy and I are the third party. We are the ones signing this, this guarantor lease, this guarantor agreement, which is about 50 pages. And, but it is, we are saying that if Zoe cannot pay her amount of the rent, that we will pay it. We are the guarantors of this lease. And so if Zoe fails for any reason to pay her rent, it's okay, Zoe, we got you covered. That's the, that's the, what the work of a guarantor or a cosigner does. There's a little difference between the two legally, but, but that's it in a nutshell. We are backing up that promise that she's making to the leasing company. And so we learned about that, and the thing about this, this, why we need this third party is because when, when a promise is made, these promises need assurances. You know, a handshake just doesn't do it anymore. There has to be some assurance. Think about it when you were a kid. When I was a kid anyway, like if, if one of my friends was, uh, was, was told to, to rake his leaves, and then he said, hey, Mike, I'll tell you what, you rake my leaves for me, I'll give you $5. Well, the first thing I want to know, do you promise there had to be something more that I heard from him that was going to make sure that he that he was telling me the truth, that he was committing to this. And for some reason, that, that had weight with me. If somebody said, yes, I promise. And I think that that's been kind of a common thing, that when we hear that somebody promises, we expect them to carry it through. We've seen all their lives, these Hebrews, as we come into, into the, the text of the Hebrews now, that all these, all their lives, before Christ, they were trusting in a type of third-party system. They were trusting in mediators to, to connect them with Yahweh, the priesthood. They were trusting in them, the law, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood it's called, the descendants of Levi is why it's called the Levitical priesthood. And then they were introduced to the Son of God, the great high priest, Jesus, the resurrected living Savior. And in chapter 1, that's why the the author opens up with saying, many times in many ways God spoke through the prophets, but these last days he speaks through his Son, who is the radiance of his glory, who is the exact imprint of his nature. He is God incarnate. 
And he's reminding them of how powerful and how great the Son of God is. He is the new fulfillment of the law. But the problem was, and the Hebrews, and the Hebrews were all about this. The Hebrews became Christians. They, they, they came, uh, they, they identified themselves with Christ. They went through this time of persecution as we, we read about in chapter 10. But then, as they realized, the problem they ran into was the one they were called to identify with. This great high priest was also a troublemaker to the Romans. He was one who stirred up a lot of trouble with the Roman government. And as we heard before, as we hear, we remember that the Hebrews were facing another oncoming persecution, and they were fearful. So the writer continues to remind them. First of all, he warns them. He always peppers in some warnings throughout this letter. Be careful that you don't drift away. Be careful that you get carried away by deceitfulness of sin. Be careful that you don't fall away because if you fall out the foundation of Christ, there is no way it's impossible to restore you to repentance. If you do not claim Christ, there is nothing else that we saw in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, Dave brought us in at the end of chapter 6 last week and, and the beginning of chapter 7, he introduced this figure named Melchizedek we read, we read about. Mentioned twice in Scripture. In Genesis 14, as was read, and, and uh, um, as Chris mentioned, and in Psalm 110, as Jason read. So the writer is using Melchizedek, and he's talking about Melchizedek to remind the, 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 to remind the Hebrews once again that Jesus, our great high priest, he is not only the great high priest, he is the superior priest who paid the superior price in order to guarantee a superior possession for God's people. He is a superior priest. He paid the superior price in order to guarantee the superior possession for God's people. Let's look at how he starts this in uh, chapter 7, verse 4. He says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And you see an exclamation mark in the ESV there. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. See, although the Old Testament priests... These descendants of Levi took tithes. They really had no, they were equals. They were taking tithes from those who were their equals. Brother to brother. Kind of bankrupt to bankrupt. They had no blessing from the Lord Most High, from El Elyon. They had no blessing to give. They were taking the tithes. They were serving the Lord in that way. It was required of the law, yes, but they were mere Men and they were mere men, as as the writer of Hebrews says earlier on in this letter. They were equal to equal, but they were mediating for a future hope. But verse six says, "This man Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." He talks about the promise in chapter six, verse fifteen, where he says, "I'll make you a great nation and multiply you." 
This was the Lord's blessing upon Abraham. It is beyond dispute, therefore, it's beyond argument that what's happening here is the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's making a case here that Melchizedek was greater. In one case, now it gets a little weird here. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it testifies that he lives. So Melchizedek was never, there's no record of Melchizedek's death. It doesn't mean he was necessarily eternal, but there's no record of his death. The thing that it's pointing to here is the priesthood of Melchizedek that lives on. This Melchizedek's priesthood lives on. One might even say, in verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's kind of interesting. That the great-great-grandson of Abraham, somehow, as he says, he's saying, it could even be said that perhaps... Levi paid tithes through Abraham. That's a head-scratcher. But here's the point. The point is, goes, goes back to the beginning of this passage, how great the man was to whom Abraham the patriarch. He calls him Abraham the patriarch. Abraham the patriarch was the representative head of the people of Israel. He's noted here as the representative of God's people. And so Israel, in a sense, including everybody that descended from him, including the priesthood, all of the priests, Levi included, Aaron, all of them, they, in a sense, through Abraham, were paying tithes to this Melchizedek. The priests needed a priest. As I said, Levitical priests came from Levi, and each one had to be replaced because each one died. And when one died, the other filled in, and then another one. It was not a perpetual priesthood in the sense of these men were not immortal. They all died and had to be continually replaced. That is the point of this first part here. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and his priesthood never ended. The superior blesses the inferior. In their fear, the Hebrews wanted to go back to relying on this bankrupt system, this system of the Levitical priests, the system of priests and sacrifices. This was something that was instituted by the law, but it was temporary. The sacrifices were only like, could be, can be, I, um, likened to checks or promissory notes. Because people sometimes will say, well, then why were these sacrifices happening if they didn't have any value? Well, they did have value. They meant something. When you write a check, does it mean something? So, about 20 years ago, I went to my mailbox in Nashville, our house in in East Nashville, and and, uh, I... uh, noticed a letter from the bank, or was a, a envelope from the bank. And inside the envelope was a return check. And it was a return check for $1,000. And it, it really, it kind of blew my mind because I didn't know where this check came from. I, I, I don't remember. I asked Christy, I'm like, when did we write this check? 
Well, what I found out was it was the earnest money that we paid the realtor a whole year ago for our home. See, when you buy a home and you make a deal, they, they want earnest money to say that you're going to promise to fulfill your part of the bargain. So we paid a thousand, well, <laughs> we wrote a check for a thousand dollars. That check was a piece of paper that said a thousand dollars on it, had the bank's name, and we signed it. But it was worth pennies. And yet, because it was a piece of paper with my name and Christie's name on it, $1,000, it was able to secure a home deal for us. You see the importance here? No money was ever exchanged for a whole year. They didn't even try to cash that check until a year later. I could have had nothing in my bank account. We could have had nothing in our bank account and still wrote that check. Isn't that wild? But the law, that was the law. That's what the Levitical priests were doing. They were receiving these sacrifices as promissory notes because what we are, because the, what God was teaching through the law was that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that these sacrifices were done with the intent of knowing that one day this payment would be made. And over and over, every sacrifice was made, was building, was building, was building. It was another check, another check, another check. Not doing anything as far as any value because it really wasn't forgiving any sins. But it was looking ahead to the one who would be the end of the law. Christ, through the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? This was something that was looking ahead to Christ. It was not meant to be permanent. See, there was coming a day when no more checks were going to be needed to be written because, so to speak, the whole house would be paid in full. And who wants to write mortgage checks after your house is paid off in full? What use is that when you realize someone paid for that house completely and you still want to write mortgage checks and not acknowledge the one who paid in full all of your debt. So the greater priest, the priest according to the order of Melchizedek was Christ, and he made the superior payment, the payment that did it all. Verse 11 says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has served at the altar. So you see, verse 11, he's saying, now if perfection, that that word for, for perfection is really about being qualified. If qualification to be in God's presence had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then there'd be no further need for another priest to come behind them. There would be no further need for some eternal priest because the law would do what it was supposed to do. But it's not able. 
It was not able. It was never meant to do that. Paul says in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. The whole idea that Christ was the end of the law, the whole thing that that Jesus said in in Matthew 5, that he came to fulfill the law, sees an end to the law. It always looks ahead to an end to the law. It was never meant to be temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. Then he goes on in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. What's that mean? When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. The priesthood itself, if we look at the, if we look at the law, most of the law was about the priesthood. It was about building the tabernacle. It was about building the temple. It was about how the sacrifices are made. It was about who could receive the sacrifices, when, on what day. It was about the Day of Atonement. It was about all the ways that God set up for the people to, to go through the Levitical law, to have those sacrifices made and to be mediated by a priest. That was the law. And when a new priest comes, when a priest, an eternal priest, comes and pays the whole price, it changes everything. He's saying that law is now obsolete. That law is no longer needed. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. It's, he's not even the, the, the Lord. Now he's talking about the Lord. The Lord is not even from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. Moses said nothing about the tribe of Judah for the priesthood. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. But what was said about the tribe of Judah? The author refers to this back in chapter 1. We we read it a few weeks ago. Well, many weeks ago now. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 Nathan says to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David from the line of Judah. He's going to continue that kingdom forever. Through Levi, it was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be forever. But through Judah, the line of Judah. Isaiah says this in chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Remember, the author talks about entering into his rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in Meribah, he says. They didn't enter his rest because of unbelief. And the Hebrews were at risk of this unbelief. They were at risk of drifting because of fear. Because they were afraid of what was to come. But the alternative was worthless. And that is what the author is saying. The alternative here is worthless. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, he wasn't becoming a priest through the genealogy of the Levitical priests. He was becoming a priest by the power of an indestructible life. All the other Levitical priests, their lives ended. 
But the eternal priest, the supreme priest, is the one who has an indestructible life. His priesthood never ends because he never ends. For it's witnessed of him, verse 17, you are a priest forever, out of Psalm 110. After the order of Melchizedek. The way of order there, that, that word for order could be out of the, after the nature of Melchizedek. He was one who had, it talks about having no genealogy. One whose priesthood goes on forever. And this is the one. And by the way, if, if you, um, if you look at what, what the, uh, uh, traditional Jews believe about this psalm, they also believe that this is speaking about the Messiah. They just don't believe it's about Jesus. <laughs> but they do believe that God here is talking about the coming Messiah. He says that your priesthood is going to be forever. And therefore, you paid the superior price by putting an end to the law. And he was chosen by an oath. This word for oath is, is, is uh, throughout. Uh, you see this repeated probably three, four times in this passage here. And once again, it's one of these words that only occurs in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Remember, we talk about all these words that, that occur only once or only twice or only in the book of Hebrews. This is another one. It's that oath, a word spoken from God, a legal guarantee. All the other priests came through descendants. They came as, as, the, as the one died and the next one was appointed. That was God's way of doing it. But this priest, the supreme priest, was appointed by the Lord himself by an oath. This oath, which is a legal guarantee in a transaction that you, you, the Lord, will be a priest forever. And therefore, through that, he's guaranteeing for us a superior possession. Verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. Once again, he says in verse 19, The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So many of these songs this morning were able to just preach themselves. <laughs> when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Amen. And it was not without an oath, verse 20. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, the Lord, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, once again, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Remember, opening up here, talking about the role of the guarantor. 
The one who takes over the debt for the one who cannot pay it. The one who guarantees that the promise that had been made is going to be fulfilled. Because you have to prove yourself able to back it up. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And through all of this, through being our supreme priest and paying, being able, the only one able to pay the supreme price, he was able to secure for us a supreme possession because he is the guarantor of a better covenant that was useless without his price being paid. It was useless when all others were mortal. But now that the one who came, who is eternal, living forever, It is now able to be fulfilled. There is no more to be paid. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily because for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the word of God's oath, God's guarantee upon this one, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, who is qualified, is the only one qualified, and he's qualified forever. The guarantor says, it is finished. The guarantor makes us be able to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Romans, Paul tells us that we have One who is interceding for us constantly. One who is going before the Father for us constantly. Now I like what what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, this isn't isn't Jesus going before the Father and and, and pleading and hoping that the Father will will listen. And every day going before him and and making his his plea. In fact, they say in the catacombs in, in, uh, in, in Europe where the catacombs were, there are images of, of Christ lifting up his hands as, as pleading before the Father. They said this is not about Jesus trying to make an excuse for us. Because the great high priest paid the price. We're spotless with him. We are in him. We are identified with him, and before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea because the great high priest whose name is love ever intercedes for me. Paul says this in Romans 8.34, What then shall we say to these things? Because of our high priest, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And because of this high priest, Paul goes on to say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Think about what you've done. Think about the dark areas of your heart. Think about the people you've cheated. 
the people you've offended, the people you let down. Think about those things that you wouldn't dare want anybody else to know about you. And it's that that Satan wants to bring a charge against you and say, see, see, you're not qualified. You're not. But what does Paul say? He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's people? It is God who justifies, not you, Satan. You you don't tell us what to do. The great high priest has paid our debt and wiped it clean. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It is his righteousness that's before the throne of God. His righteousness that the Father sees when he looks at us. It is the the, the righteousness of the Son of God, the righteous Son of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Hebrews, persecution's coming, but this will not separate you from the love of God. Shall famine, nakedness, danger, sword... Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What more can we say, brothers and sisters? The great high priest, our supreme priest, has secured for us a supreme possession that no one can take from our hand, no matter what happens. One with himself, we cannot die. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you paid the price. Thank you that you live on to intercede for us and that we could say that we are one with you and because of that, we shall not die. Thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and it is you that the Father sees when he looks upon us. Thank you. Lord, increase our faith that in times of trouble we may believe that you are the one who goes before us. Increase our faith in times of despair, that you are the one who is our light in those times of darkness. Increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.